Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. As Russia's war on Ukraine grinds on with no end in sight, what's at stake may be changing. At first, President Putin's demands seemed aimed at creating a buffer between Russia and NATO, even if some of his wildest rhetoric envisioned the possibility of kicking the United States out of Europe. But as Blitzkrieg turned into a war of attrition, arguably the confrontation is becoming about something much bigger than European security arrangements. It's becoming about how the world works, about democracy versus autocracy, about free versus not free. Western media caricatures Russia's international support network as thin and vulnerable. While it may be, in fact, a surprising list of countries, big and small, are either actively or passively supporting Putin's war. China, Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, Belarus are obvious, but a number of others are at least hedging their bets. Why? My guest today has a theory. Indeed, more than a theory, he has lived experience. Leopoldo Lopez is a Venezuelan patriot who has been imprisoned for his efforts to resurrect democracy in his country and who, it's safe to say, is high on the list of people whom President Maduro wishes would just go away. Welcome, Leo. How are you today? Well, thank you very much. Thank you for for this opportunity and uh, very interested in, in talking to you and sharing with your audience some thoughts about what you just said, autocracy versus freedom. Thanks. I have the privilege of knowing a bit of your backstory. Prison, solitary confinement, house arrest, hunger strike. But I don't want to start with Venezuela. I want to start with Putin. Or rather, with your conviction that the autocracies of the world are united in their support for each other and in their shared opposition, hatred might be a better word, for freedom and democracy. What do Venezuela and Russia, Maduro and Putin have in common? Well, you remember we we had a conversation some months ago uh, before the invasion to Ukraine. And uh, at that moment, we were saying that the real geopolitical struggle of this moment is autocracy versus democracy. Uh, It became very clear to everybody after the Russian invasion to Ukraine, because uh, it's it's now very clear that the real threat that Ukraine imposed on Russia was to have a flourishing democracy. Uh, that would be an example, a mirror of what Russia could be. Uh, And that was uh, enough of a reason to invade Ukraine for, I'm sure, other reasons related to energy and to the craziness of of Putin. But you ask me what Putin and Maduro have in common. Uh, I'll answer that question saying that it's not just Putin and Maduro, but it's a larger network of uh, autocracies that have been for years now uh, developing uh, an expansionist, um, um, takeover of different countries, uh, supporting dictators, supporting violations of human rights, supporting uh, fake elections, supporting uh, the crushing of uh, free speech, uh, and of course, supporting the crushing of all the manifestations, the freedom movements, the people in the streets with brutality, repression, uh, prison, and, and even murder. Uh, and that has been common not only to Venezuela and Russia, but also to Belarus, to Zimbabwe, to Hong Kong, 
to Nicaragua, to Cuba, to Iran. So uh, there are many different countries that today are facing the same uh, conflict, which is how to struggle for freedom, how to promote freedom, how to bring freedom about, but having in front an autocratic regime that has uh, all of the means to crush the freedom movements. So that's a real challenge that we have at this moment. That list of countries is, in one sense, strange, very little in common. What Venezuela, uh, Korea, North Korea, uh, Zimbabwe, uh, and so forth. What are they doing? It's not about ideology. What do they have in common? What, and are they acting in concert, in your judgment? Well, it's, a, it's very important what you just said. It, it's not about ideology. This is not about the, the communist model of China uh, or, or a theocratic regime in Iran. Uh, they couldn't be farther away in the ideological spectrum, but they share their view on having an autocratic regime that does not obey the rule of law, that does not respect human rights, that does not respect and promote the freedoms of the peoples within the countries, and that does not promote and have free and fair elections. So that's 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 a common thread of uh, of all of these countries that that we have just mentioned, and many others like Cambodia, like Myanmar, like many others that have in common uh, the, the 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 hope, the the will, the struggle for free and fair elections in order to have democracy, uh, but having to face. Autocrats. And your second question was, uh, are they articulated among each other? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes with capital letters. And this has been going on for years now. Uh, and we have seen this in Venezuela as a very clear example of how the reason why Maduro is still in power, uh, if you ask me the main reason, the most important one that has an impact on others is the type of international support that Maduro has been able to get from these autocratic regimes, uh, from China, from Turkey, from Iran, from the Islamic Republic of Iran, from Belarus, from Russia, uh, from Cuba. This is a network of countries that have been giving Maduro all sorts of support, support with uh, military uh, equipment, with military training, support in articulated democracy at all levels from the UN Security Council downwards, uh, support in terms of financing uh, infrastructure or even expenditure, uh, in terms of extracting, uh, refining, and doing the commerce of blood gold of Venezuela, uh, in supporting the extraction of, uh, of oil by, by Iran, uh, the import to Venezuela of Iranian gasoline. So there are many, many different ways in which this network of support has given uh, Maduro. And this is not an isolated case. This is also the case for countries like Nicaragua and others, that this is the one reason why these autocracies have been able to hold on to power and even to have an expansionist view of, of taking over different different countries. And, and there are also the internal realities of uh, autocratic leaders that see the weaknesses uh, within the system, because many of them uh, reach uh, the position of power through the ropes of democracy by winning elections, uh, but then they turn uh, to the autocratic ways and, and crush uh, all the civil liberties, the rule of law, human rights, and, and they start to drift down the line of uh, autocracy. Let me play the devil's advocate just for a second. Other than China, most of the countries that you're talking about 
Most of those autocracies are economic basket cases. They're poor, they're lost in the 21st century. Even if you add some fellow travelers uh, like the Gulf Arabs perhaps, or South Africa or Argentina, you don't really change the calculus dramatically. Why should the West, by which essentially I mean the OECD, uh, worry about a bunch of countries that um, are so poor? What's the challenge? Uh, a couple of ways I can answer that. Uh, and, and I'll start by the idealism. Uh, I had the opportunity to study in the United States during the 1990s. Uh, that was the moment right after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, and the sentiment was that the world was inevitably going towards uh, democracy. Uh, that was a precondition for market economy. That was a precondition for prosperity. So there was this big idealism at the time of uh, of, of uh, supporting what was happening in Eastern Europe, uh, in Africa and Latin America. Uh, and I remember uh, very clearly that that, that sentiment of, of, of seeing that it was worth it to promote freedom and democracy. Uh, 30 years after that, 25 years after that, things uh, have changed uh, in a very different way. Uh, in fact, over the past 20 years, there has been a rise in autocratic regimes. Um, so there has been a clear recession of democratic countries. That means that there are less countries in the world that today hold on to the values of, of, of a liberal democracy, among them the rule of law, the respect of the human rights, civil liberties, um, the respect of property, the respect of freedom of speech. Um, and, uh, and and that um, it's, it's something that should be of concern to everybody, not just the governments, but also the people that live in established democracies like the United States or European countries or, or other democracies around the world, because the failure of democracy uh, uh, abroad, it's a threat to the democracy within. And actually, over the past couple of years, there has also been a discussion about the health, about the the. the um, the strength of the democratic regimes in, in the United States and, and in Europe. Uh, there has been uh, that discussion about uh, the, the drift towards uh, autocratic practices, even within the United States. So uh, I think that this is something of concern for those people who believe uh, that it's, it's, it's important to um, live within the values of a democratic regime uh, and that it's a right for the people all over the world to also live under those set of values. Because I wanna make something very clear and that this, this is my experience. Uh, one thing is one, when one um, analyzes a country through the lenses of who has the power uh, in that country. But a very different way of analyzing a country is what the people from those countries hope that, uh, that, that could happen in their countries. But what I mean by this, is that I know that the majority of the people in Venezuela, in Nicaragua, in Cuba, in Belarus, even in Russia, uh, in Iran, would rather live in a democratic regime, would rather live in, uh, in, in a system where their rights are respected, where they can promote their own opportunities through their efforts, and where, where there is even a social net and a social possibility for those that have not, that they can have also the opportunities. So people do have that, that sense of freedom, even within these countries. And I can tell you that that's the case of Venezuela. So I think that uh, being this the case, um, it should be of concern to everybody to promote the possibilities of the peoples all over the world 
to live under a, a, a democratic system that respects their freedoms and their civil liberties and human rights. I truly believe that. The key word in what you just said is should, I think. That is to say, you have, as I said at the top, the lived experience of having lost democracy in Venezuela. Uh, most Americans, most Europeans uh, don't have that experience. They've not seen their democracy disappear, maybe eroded around the edges more in some places, less in others, uh, but not the kind of trauma that Venezuela has experienced that you have experienced. Do you think Americans, do you think Europeans get what's at risk here? Understand the problem? Well, I, I think after the invasion of Ukraine, uh, everybody should. Uh, and, and if they don't, I, I think that requires some um, in, introspection because it's very clear uh, what happens when when freedom is under attack. I mean, and in, in the case of the invasion to Ukraine, it's under attack uh, with missiles, bombs, um, all sorts of violations of human rights, genocide, as it has been qualified over the, the past actions in Bucha and elsewhere. Uh, so I think that should be a, enough of a moral truth for everybody to understand the, the threat uh, and, and what it means that, um, that, that democracy comes under attack. But if, if it's, it is true that it's being under attack by missiles and bombs in Ukraine, but there are other front lines of freedom. Uh, and I want to appeal to the memories of many of your audiences, and I'm sure that remember that over the past three years, just to put a, a, a time period, we have seen huge uh, protests, civil and, and, and pacific protests, in nonviolent protests in Belarus, uh, in Myanmar, in Nicaragua, in Venezuela, um, in Iran, uh, in Hong Kong. And unfortunately, in all of those places, uh, the regimes uh, are still holding on to power. Um, unfortunately, as well, many of the leaders of those movements are either in prison or in exile, uh, and the movements have been very weakened from within. So those are other front lines of freedom that, uh, that, that uh, should be, again, I use the word should, um, but I, I, I truly believe that this is something that, that we should all be committed to, uh, is of interest to everybody because, uh, again, um, if, if one believes in human rights, one believes in the word that establishes that human rights are universal. Uh, if you're an American and, and you uh, believe uh, in, in your own constitutions, the set of values that, um, were, that built this country, you assume that the, the civil rights and, 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 the, and that the civil liberties are uh, also universal when you say all men are created equal. So uh, this should be of concern. So I know I'm appealing to maybe the, the idealistic or, or, or the moral commitment, but this is a time of moral commitment. This is a time when democracy and, and the way we see the world going forward um, with respect for human rights uh, and the rule of law and all of the values of a democracy, um, it's under threat. So I believe that it, it, it's, it should be an eye opening for everybody. Let's talk about Ukraine in that context. Uh, maybe I'm cynical, but it seems that the West is willing to fight the Russians to the last Ukrainian. 
in spite of everything the Russians have done, the West is still focused on sanctions and supplies. Do you think that response is adequate to the kind of challenge, both in the specific case of the Ukraine uh, invasion by Russia, but more broadly in this larger confrontation that you have sketched between autocracy and democracy? Are we doing enough? Well, I, I think that we need to point out a, a very important shift in, in, in politics, particular, particularly in, in the politics of Europe towards this type of conflict, uh, because the invasion to Ukraine has brought uh, the, the capacity to sanction and the will to sanction um, a specific country uh, in a way that it has not been seen before. Uh, so I, I think this is a very important response that articulated um, the Europe, North America, the U.S. and Canada and other countries uh, that, that gave a very strong response at that level. Uh, and then there are, of course, the challenges of, of how to support militarily the military conflict. I, I think that the premise should be that Ukraine uh, is in a position to win this war and that all of the support that Ukraine uh, needs in order to win this war because they have the will, they have the leadership, they have the organization, and they have the support of, 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 the, of the world, uh, of, of many of the peoples from the world, um, that, we, that, 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 the, the, that Europe, the United States, and all of the countries uh, should be given all of the support that is necessary. To what point that translates to another phase? Uh, I, I think that's, uh, that, that, that's more of a specific question and, and experts to, to determine. But the premise should be Ukraine needs to win this war and all the support that Ukraine needs should be given it to them. A world under stress needs leaders in every discipline and in every country. Leaders whose work is innovative, courageous, rooted in universal values and global in approach or implication. If you know someone like that, in your company, in your university, in your community, anywhere, please nominate that person for the Talberg SNF Aliasin Global Leadership Prize. Go to talbergprize.org. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G prize.org. Let me push back. Europe is still paying something like a billion dollars a day to the Russians for energy and, and other things. Uh, there is a lot of speeches being made. You mentioned sanctions. Those sanctions, a bit like the unwillingness to actually go to war, those sanctions are intended to hurt the Russians without really hurting the people putting the sanctions in place. It absolutely does not matter if the United States sanctions uh, oil from Russia, if at the same time we're trying desperately to buy oil from Iran or even from Venezuela. So I see an inconsistency. I see a willingness to, to talk big but act small, the exact opposite of what Teddy Roosevelt advised a long time ago. Am I too cynical? Are you right that at least we're trying this time? I, I, I think you're right uh, in the sense that in the, in the implementations, all of these inconsistencies uh, are surfacing. Uh, are, so there is a big discussion in Europe um, about the, 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 the comparison between the commitment to support Ukrainian efforts in the war, $3 billion, 
uh, and the amount that Europe has paid um, Russia for gas and oil over the same period of time, that is something like $33 billion. So that, of course, shows an inconsistency that brings a, a huge set of other challenges that are, you know, what are the alternatives in, 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 in how long can the alternatives be put into place? But, but for sure, uh, I think that that is a debate that it, it's only beginning. Uh, and in that sense, uh, I believe that this is not only something that should be of concern to governments, uh, but also to corporations. Um, as you know, there is the concept that corporations use to measure their investments and their commitments that is called ESG, Environment, Social and Governance. Uh, and that's, that, that, that is a, um, a way to see the, the, the commitment to a certain corporation and its activities to these issues. Well, one of the things we believe is that, we, that, that, that there should be the consideration of adding uh, another letter, the F, uh, freedom. So it should be ESGF uh, and to determine what type of commitments corporations have within autocratic regimes. Uh, and this will lay out a whole set of, uh, of discussion and about the commitment to this uh, confrontation between autocracy and democracy that underlines a lot of the complexities, which is the coupling of the economies of Europe, United States, and China, uh, and to a lesser extent, uh, Russia. But this, this is a, a discussion that needs to happen um, because there are corporations that are selling their goods and services in Europe and in the United States that are using slave labor from China, for example. Um, and there are other corporations that are not only doing labor abuses, but the, the funding that the, those activities provide to autocrats uh, allows them to hold on to power and to violate uh, the human rights of the people. So I think this is also a discussion that needs to happen uh, at the boardrooms, at the business school, uh, at the regulatory level. Um, now maybe not the regulatory. I think it should be more from, from, from the conscious and the commitment. Um, but, but adding the F, the, the commitment to freedom, the commitment to, uh, to promoting these universal um, values that we, uh, that, that, that we all believe in, or at least I believe in, and I, I know that millions of people uh, are also willing to promote and defend uh, freedom and democracy. Leo, that is an incredibly interesting, but also incredibly radical proposal in the sense that the facts of the matter are these. I saw a map the other day that showed that China is the largest trading partner for almost every country in Europe, in the Middle East, in Africa, and in much of Asia. The United States is the largest trading partner essentially in the Americas and not in all of the Americas. So for a movement to begin saying, wait a minute, we're, we, need to, we need our companies, we need our banks, we need, our we need to use our economic power in parallel with our political desires, that implies a dramatic rearrangement of how the global economy works uh, I'm not arguing against it. I'm pointing out that we had premised much of the growth of the last 20, 30 years on globalization, on pretending that everybody was, was in fact headed in the same direction. As you pointed out earlier, it's clearly not happening. 
Do you think we would be better served by beginning to decouple, to use the, the phrase, uh, the Western democratic economies from the autocracies? Well, I, I believe that there is um, a big discussion happening uh, about what's globaliz- what, what's the state of globalization, uh, especially after the, the war in Ukraine. Um, and after COVID, I mean, there are different factors that are pointing that this is, is something that is being reshaped uh, as we speak uh, because of the supply lines after COVID. I mean, there was a big impact. Uh, and also after this the invasion in Ukraine that has had a, a huge impact and will continue to have in, in the cycles of the energy supply um, because China will start to buy the oil coming from Russia and, and Europe will... In, in the midterm uh, will become less and less dependent on Russian gas and oil. So those are all um, variables that are affecting this discussion on globalization. There, uh, and and I, you ask me if, if it's uh, important that there is a, at least a, an understanding of how corporations that sell goods and services in, in liberal democracies are coupled with uh, autocratic regimes. And I think at least the consumer should have this information available to them uh, because if there, if, if, if there is a growing sense of, uh, of freedom as a value that should be defended, and I think that the invasion to Ukraine has sparked that, 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 that light uh, inside many, many people. Uh, and, and if that is so, I think consumers should have the right to know if a good or, or a service is being provided uh, with the use of, of uh, forced labor or uh, supporting a, an autocratic regime. Um, and and that, that's why uh, I appeal to this discussion to corporations and to businesses and, and, and to business schools and to people who think about these issues because uh, they do have a responsibility. And uh, as you point out, the past 30 years have been about globalization. And uh, if we see the the the, G, the weight of the Chinese GDP uh, 30 years ago, now it has grown exponentially. Uh, so the, the largest beneficiary of that globalization has been China. That's that's very very clear. Uh, but part of that growth has been the creation of dependencies uh, to different economies. I mean, there is a clearly a dependency on the U.S. economy, uh, not only of its debt, but also infrastructure and all sorts of investments, even. A huge investments that are happening in real estate now uh, in the U.S. Um, by Chinese funds. Uh, but this is also true uh, in the way that Chinese has locked in um, their their um, influence to many African countries because of the infrastructure um, um, uh, the loans that they gave at very different um, credentials or with very different credentials or or, or capacities uh, than than the IMF or other. Uh, bank sources. So this is this is something that is happening, and and I think that uh, that that discussion it, it it won't be from one day to another. But uh, but but I think that there are enough people. I don't know if it's you know ten percent, twenty percent, thirty percent of the people at this moment that would be willing to decide between a good and a service uh, that uh, that is manufactured uh, within an autocratic regime versus another one that that is not. Uh, to choose uh, as they choose in the same way for environmental reasons. 30 years ago, the stage of the discussion about the environment was at this stage that we're talking about now in terms of freedom. 
uh, and now it's mainstream. I mean, now you go to uh, to buy whatever goods and services, uh, and there is a, a, a clear decision that tilts uh, many people to the product or the service that is environmentally uh, consistent or friendly or sustainable. Let me reframe the perspective a bit. I know that you are in touch with what I'll call dissident Democrats around the world, people like yourself who have decided that they have to fight for democracy and freedom uh, in the autocracies, uh, in Hong Kong, in Belarus, in Iran, uh, all over the world. Two questions. What do you think you have in common with with them? And secondly, how do you think that that collaboration might affect your struggle for democracy in Venezuela? No, very, very interesting. And I'll, I'll answer with an anecdote. Um, I, I escaped Venezuela after being seven years in confinement um, a year, uh, a bit more than a year ago. Um, I, I came to Europe, to Spain, where my family had been in exile because my father was also, uh, there was a warrant for his arrest um, eight years ago. Um, so I spent the first couple months in, in, in COVID, in confinement. But then I had the opportunity to travel. I went to Washington, D.C., uh, and I met my my lawyer for the first time, Jared Ganser. Uh, we, we spoke over the phone, but it was the first time we met. And he told me um, if, if I wanted to meet some people from uh, that were there that were also political prisoners at a time. So we met with, uh, with several people uh, with, from China, South Sudan, um, from Iran uh, and others. And we started a conversation and that conversation um, was very interesting and very shocking to me because we couldn't be more different. This, the, the color of our, of our skin, uh, the religion, the history, the history of each one of our countries, the the um, the religion, and and we couldn't be more different. But when we started to talk about our experiences as political prisoners, or experiences confronting autocracy, uh, the way in which they went after our families, the way in which they divided our movements, the way in which they attacked us in in many ways, including. Um, uh, the reputational um, murder to all of us, uh, all sorts of attacks. It was a conversation uh, as if I was talking to people from my own movement in Venezuela. We knew exactly, we're talking exactly the same language. Uh, And that was very shocking to all of us. And uh, that's why we started to to discuss about the possibility of uh, putting together an an alliance um, of people who like us, uh, have been um, in the front lines of freedom, uh, many of them in exile, others are still within the countries, people that have uh, organized, promoted, uh, and been successful <clears throat> in taking to, to the streets uh, freedom movements. So the, the first um, benefit of uh, promoting a, a, an alliance of this sort is that we can learn from each other. We can... Um, support each other in many different ways. And we can also advocate for the freedom of each one of our countries with a greater strength. Because the fact is that we are facing a network of autocracies that are working together, that are supporting each other, that are um, taking to different levels that support, as I said before, 
at the diplomatic level, militarily, financial, political, in, in many different ways. And, and we need to um, have a similar network that promotes freedom and democracy. And I can tell you that I've been very uh, surprised by the amount of people that have the will to continue this fight, uh, to put their freedom at risk, to do whatever it takes in order to organize the people from each one of their countries to be successful at having free and fair elections. It, it's very encouraging. Uh, and you asked me, how does this relate to the fight for freedom in Venezuela? Uh, and I can answer telling you, because it's the same fight. The fight for freedom um, anywhere is a fight for freedom in Venezuela. That's why many of us believe that the fight that today is uh, happening in Ukraine is also the fight for uh, freedom in, in many of our countries, in Nicaragua, in Cuba, in Venezuela, in many other countries. Um, and if we um, understand that we need to broaden, broaden this network, we need to increase, we need to make it uh, beyond just the leaders and the actual movements and to engage with the people from different uh, democracies all over the world and create uh, the capacities to bring about free and fair elections in our countries, uh, that, that is something that it's, it's worth articulating. Let me in this way. Leo, by definition, you're an optimist in the sense that you believe things will and can get better. What motivates you? Well, for sure, I'm an optimist. I don't think um, you can lead anything in life if you're not an optimist. Uh, so you're always optimistic about the idea that you are willing to make happen. And, and that's true for anybody that is doing it, all sorts of things. Uh, in our case, and, and I speak with in a very large plural, in our case, yeah, it's about freedom. So, of course, we need to be optimistic that, that change can happen. Of course, we need to be optimistic that uh, we can bring about free and fair elections that could lead to the prosperity and to overcoming poverty and to the respect of the human rights of our, of our people. Because, you know, that's a promised land that, that makes one move. Uh, especially when the circumstances are very difficult, are very adverse, uh, having that conviction, it's, 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 it's what wakes you up every morning. It's what, at least it's what makes me uh, smile at life uh, every day, saying that it's worth it, that, that we need to continue. Well, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for what you're doing, not just for Venezuela, but for Democrats, small d, everywhere. Well, thank you. Thank you. And uh, I hope um, we continue to have this conversation that, as we said, uh, it, it's something that everybody should be engaged in. Those, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation. <laughs>